Let's open our Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 40. Our goal over the next two weeks is to um, cut from chapter 40 to 48 in two. It is that portion of the Bible that deals with what we call the millennium or the kingdom age. And Ezekiel's book really takes a, a, a turn for the better for hope once you get to chapters 35 and 36, 36 and 37 in particular. It goes from Ezekiel warning the people that they're going into captivity because of their sins. He eventually was proven to be a prophet of God because that's exactly what happened. The problem was he had false prophets telling people, kick back, don't worry about a thing, nothing's really going to happen. God would never allow his temple to be destroyed ever. And um, it happened. And the unthinkable happened on the 9th of Av in 586 B.C. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon destroyed Solomon's temple. And at that time, um, what we're going to be looking at in chapter 43 of, e- of Ezekiel tonight is the return of the Shekinah glory of God back to the millennial temple. I'm going to warn you ahead of time, as I studied this, um, in different commentaries, nobody would tackle it verse by verse, simply because it's very repetitive and extremely detailed as it lays out the dimensions, in particular, of the temple itself. And so we're, we are going to go through it tonight. We're going to go through these four chapters. But from, uh, let me remind you that from 36 and 37, which we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, we've watched this be fulfilled in our lifetime. Israel is back in the land. And we've watched it with our own eyes. Next year, it'll be 70 years, on May 14th, 1948. Then, last Sunday, we talked about, do we actually really see the world lining up for the Ezekiel 38 and 39 war? And um, we went into a lot of detail. Uh, We talked a lot about Turkey being the holdout. But as it stands right now, as you look at the list of countries that will come against Israel, Everything is lined up. The main player is um, Russia, Gog and Magog. Gog, a title of a person. Magog is the land. Putin is the person, I have no doubt about it. And Russia is the land. They put a picture up on the screen that showed to the far north is where it's going to come from. And if you take Jerusalem and you go due north, straight north, you can hit Moscow. And so this, the stage is set. And um, we talked about that morning, news breaking of um, Syrian jets uh, being intercepted just north of uh, Jerusalem. Now, one of the things um, that, I, that I think is so important in the times in which we're living is to make the distinction that the, the song we just sang, the things of this world, in most churches today, it's, it's about the here and now and about you how to be a better you, and how to have a good life life now. When the Lord actually taught just the opposite. He said, don't think I've come to bring peace. I haven't. I've come to bring division. And even in your own household, there will be those that are going to be for me and those that are going to be against you. In the church, the line is sort of being drawn doctrinally over this life now. Have your best life now. That's the title of a Joel Osteen book. 
or what Jesus talked about, about seeking first his kingdom. And when asked straight out is by Pilate, are you a king? Yes, but not of this world. This is not my kingdom. We are to live as pilgrims and strangers. So as we get into this portion, what we're going to study tonight is a structure, a form of worship that's going to exist for 1,000 years. Colossians 3 tells us that if you're born again, then you're supposed to set your mind on things that are above. Well, unless we're giving Bible studies of what is coming and what is above, how how are we supposed to set our minds on it? So as we get into this, again, I'll say this a couple times, detailed study on a religious system, great detail how it's to be maintained and carried out, and um, it will be, um, there will be a sanctuary there that uh, we'll be talking about tonight, but not where we live. So as we get into this, chapters 40 to 42 contain a description of the Millennial Temple. Now, since this is the Millennial Temple, I expect to see it and maybe go into it, but I don't intend to worship there. The temple will be here on this earth. So there will be a temple on this earth. But we, the church, we have a place that's prepared for us called the New Jerusalem where there is no temple because it says the Lord himself will be the temple. The Shekinah presence of the glory of the Lord will be there. We're going to see that in chapter 43 tonight. Um, Therefore, the church is going to be a place where there won't be a temple. We won't need one. But the earth is going to have one. So what we're looking at and what uh, my burden as a pastor is, is to really get people thinking and not about the here and now, not about things of this world that the Lord says, you know, it's moth and rust, and we all deal with things that we hold on to. We're all guilty to one degree of another. But um, it certainly shouldn't be coming from the pulpit. What uh, should be coming from the pulpit is life is short. (laughs) It's the old saying, only what's done for Christ is going to last. You can't take anything with you. But to get the mindset, because the mindset of the church in the mega churches today it's extremely popular to talk about you and what's good for you, whether it's your business, whether it's your marriage, whether it's your kids. Let's talk about that. But let's not talk about something that's going to happen after I'm not here. So let's dive in, or I'll, we'll never get through because they are uh, lengthy chapters. And as we, I'm going to do a sidetrack right away after we read the first four verses here because we have a measuring rod in view. Chapter 40 through 48 is all about the millennium. The Ezekiel 38 war is over. The tribulation is done. And when we get into Daniel, we see that when the Lord does come and destroy the nations of the world, that Jerusalem is going to be elevated high. And so he's going to mention that he's high here. And um, we're going from uh, what Jesus called the most terrible time in human history to now the reign and uh, the way it's going to be for the next 1,000 years. Verse 1. In the 25th year of our captivity, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, in the 14th year, 
after the city was captured on the very same day, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he took me there. And in the visions of God, he took me to the land of Israel, and he set me on a very high mountain. And on it toward the south was something like the structure of a city. And he took me there, and behold, there was a man whose appearance was like that, the appearance of bronze, obviously an angel. He had a line of flax and a measuring rod in his hand. And he stood at the gateway, and the man said to me, Son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears and fix your mind on everything I show you. For you were brought here so that I might show them to you. Declare this to the house of Israel, everything you see. So here's the introduction. And we have him with, we call it a ruler or tape measure today, but um, their measuring reeds um, were, were done in a different manner. I'll try to give you the, when they give a measurement, I'll try to put it in, in, in uh, measurements of, of uh, uh, feet and inches. But before we do, let's just take a little trip to Revelation chapter 11 and read the first couple verses. Because again, John sees an angel, Revelation um, 11.1, it says, Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God. Now this measuring reed, um, I've heard people equate it to Ezekiel. This is not the same temple. This is what we would call the tribulation temple. And part of the peace treaty that will exist for the first three and a half years has to do with the rebuilding of the temple. There's no ifs, ands, and buts about it. There will be a temple in Jerusalem. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 says that the Antichrist is going to go into the temple and he's going to declare himself to be God. It's called the abomination of desolation. Here, John is actually told to measure the temple and the altar and those who worship there. But then he says something interesting in verse 2. But leave out the outer courts. Now, when we get into our study tonight, we're going to talk about the inner court, the outer court, and the main wall around the whole temple area. So here, he's to measure it, but not to measure the outer court, which is outside the temple. Do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days. Well, just in these two verses alone, you have two ways of saying the same thing, three and a half years. They show up after the rapture. And along with 144,000, these are the ones that are mentioned. Not the church. Church isn't mentioned about being witnesses during the tribulation. These guys are even the duration of their time, three and a half years. And also the 144,000, they're supernaturally sealed. And they're all Jews. And, and um, I, I point this out because my personal conviction is that the world is going to be in such chaos after the rapture that some sort of agreement has to be made. And part of the agreement is rebuilding of the temple. And with the rebuilding of the temple, um, the Antichrist comes on the scene, and we have 
a partition, evidently, of some sort, because something on the Temple Mount, and I've been up there many times, um, the original uh, temple that existed during Herod's time, um, oh boy, can I get sidetracked here? i got to be real careful. <laughs> uh, lined up perfectly with what we call the Eastern Gate. And if you go to the Dome of the Rock today, and that's where people who are responsible, like... Uh, uh, my friend um, Rabbi Richmond, who's the head of the Temple Mount Institute for the rebuilding of the Second Temple. He's part of the Sanhedrin in Israel. And the only man qualified on planet Earth to determine um, uh, the ashes of a red heifer. They need a red heifer for the purification rituals for the Levites so they can be purified to perform the Levitical service in the Temple. And um, so I believe that you're going to have the Dome of the Rock still in existence. Because if you go north of the Dome of the Rock, you come to a place called the Dome of the Spirits. And that would be lining up where the Eastern Gate would have been. And um, Dr. Asher Kaufman, professor at the Hebrew University many, many years ago, said that in his studies that you could see the temple, through the eastern gate. So I I do a little sidetrack here because this is a millennial temple that we're studying tonight. Uh, There's going to be another temple built before that one, and it'll be part of a peace treaty. Daniel 9, verse 27, tells us that he will make a covenant. The Antichrist will make a covenant for seven years. But in the middle of the seven years, he breaks the covenant on the wings of an abomination. Now, he's so accurate with his stating this that critics of the Bible says Daniel had to write these things after the fact because he's so spot on with, with, um, with the history that's happening here. Jesus didn't seem to think so. Uh, Matthew 24, Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Then head for the hills, run. So Jesus confirmed it, Daniel talks about it, and um, as we read these first four verses here, this is not the tribulation temple, which will be destroyed um, with the last bowl judgment. What we have in view here is after the Lord comes back, we have this structure that's going to be built. So you guys ready to dive in? All right, we made it through four verses. All right, the first part here, what I'm going to do is, um, this is where a picture really is going to be worth a thousand words. So there's a bunch of them on the Internet, but I decided to go with this one. Uh, Let's put up the diagram. There's many that you can look at. Some of them are very detailed. As we read through this, it explains... um, um, what section you're looking at, what section you're studying as we read through these verses. We're going to start with the with the outer court. And let's pick it up because the outer court is going to um, be for verses 5 to 27, and we will read these. So let's start with verse 5. It says, Now there was a wall all around the outside of the temple. In the man's hand was a measuring rod, six cubics long, each bearing a cubic and a hand's breadth, and he measured 
the width of the wall structure, one rod, the, the height, the rod. Then he went to the gateway, which was facing east, and he went up the stairs, measured the threshold of the gateway, which was one rod, right? The other threefold was one rod. Each gate chamber was one rod long, and each one rod wide. Between the gate chambers was a space of five cubics, um, and the threshold of the gateway of the vestibule of the inside was one rod. So we have roughly this five cubics here is um, uh, either eight, almost nine feet, and the other measurement here is ten and a half feet between these different chambers. He also measured the vestibule of the inner gate with one rod. Then he measured the vestibule of the the gateway, eight cubics, and the gate post, two cubics. The vestibule of the gate was on the inside. Um, in the eastern gateway, there was three gate chambers on one side, three on the other, three of the same size. Also, the gate posts were the same size on this side and on that side. He measured... He measured the width of the entrance to the gateway, 10 cubics, and the length of the gate, 13 cubics, um, which is roughly 17 and a half feet. And there was a space in front of the gate chamber, one cubic on this side and one cubic on that side. And the gate chambers were six cubics on this side and six cubits on that side. A measurement of six cubics here is 10, 10 and a half feet. Then he measured the gateway. From the roof of one gate chamber to the roof of the other, the width was uh, 25 cubics, which is 43 feet. He measured the doorposts, six cubics high, and the court all around the gateway extended to the gate post 105 feet. Let me just stop and, and point out what part we're looking at right now. Um, let's go back to the uh, other picture because the outer, what we're talking about with the outer court, this would be where the gentleman is standing by the wall. Um, the outer court would be the one that's going around. And the measurements here between them is from the temple to the first wall. The temple itself to the first wall is 175 feet. And then from the wall that you see there that goes to the next wall is another 175 feet. And from the top, where the temple is, and I have this right, the temple itself, the inner structure is also 175 feet. So probably more information than what, what you want to know. But what we're looking at here is, is this wall that's being built and now we're going to find out the details that are in it because now it talks about um, gate posts. Here we have the, the gate itself. In verse 16, we find out there's beveled windows, frames in the gate chambers and in the intervening archways on the inside of the gateway all around and likewise the vestibules. There were windows all around the inside and on each gate post there were palm trees. <clears throat> Now, then he brought me to the, to the outer court, and there were chambers and a pavement made all around the court. Thirty chambers faced the, the pavement. The pavement was by the side of the gateway corresponding to the length of the gateway, and this was the lower pavement. Then he measured the width from 
the front of the lower gate to, to the front of the inner court exterior, 100 cubics towards east and to the north. So um, that is the 175 feet that I talked about. This is far grander in scale than Herod's temple. Um, I'll tell you now that the gate that goes around the whole temple besides this one is one mile square. And we'll be getting that. That's how huge this this is the uh, um, the chambers are going to be. Verse twenty one, its gate chambers three on this side and three on that side. Its gate posts, its arches had the same measurement. It was the first gate. The length was fifty cubics, and its width was twenty five cubics. So that's roughly eighty five feet and forty three feet. So in this wall, this outer wall that you're looking at, it's given the dimensions between the columns, evidently having windows involved um, uh, with it, and very detailed ornaments. Verse 21, there's palm trees that are set up uh, by it. It was ascended by seven steps, and its archways was in front of it. A gate of the inner court. Now we've gone from the outer court. A gate of the inner court was opposite the northern gateway, just as the eastern gateway. It measured from gateway to gateway 100 cubics, which again is 175 feet. And after he brought me towards the south, there was a gateway facing south. He measured that according to the same measurements. Now there were windows in it. And archways all around, like those windows, its length was 50 cubics, or roughly 87 feet. Uh, its width, 25 cubics, or 43. Seven steps led up to it, and its archway was in front of them, and it had palm trees on its gateposts, one on one side and one on the other. And there was also a gateway in the inner court facing south, and he measured from one gateway to the other, one 100 and cubics, again, 175 feet. So you have the temple itself. And around the temple itself, you have chambers. We're going to find out later. These are living quarters, kitchen quarters, everything that's going to be needed to maintain the daily sacrifices uh, that are going to be taking place um, during the millennial, during the millennial reign. Now, as we get to uh, verse 28, for verses 5 to 27, we were talking about the, the outer court. Now, the inner court, the rest of this um, chapter, up to verse 47, um, he brought me to the inner court through the southern gateway. He measured the southern gateway according to these same measurements. And also its gates, chambers, its gate posts, its archways were according to the same measurements that were windows in it. And the archways all around it was 50 cubics, about 87 feet. There were archways all around, 25 cubics and 5 cubics. Its archways faced the outer court, palm trees around its gate posts going up to, up to it were eight steps. Then he brought me into the inner court facing east, and he measured the gateway according to these same measurements. 
Also, its gate chambers, its gates posts, its arches were according to the same measurements, and there were windows in it, and its archways all around was 50 cubits long and 25 cubits wide. I'm reading this, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, the angel appeared to Ezekiel, took him from Babylon, gave him a vision of this, and he says, okay, what am I going to tell you? Write it down. We're talking photographic memory, (laughs) At, at least. Obviously, in the same way, the Lord spoke to Moses and dictated to him, the Lord is would bring bringing this thing back to memory for Ezekiel to have such such detail to be written down as it's describing for us what's going to exist for the next one thousand years. Um, Pick up verse thirty five. Then he brought me to the north gate and he measured it according to the same measurements. Also, the gate chambers, its gate posts, its archways, its windows all around uh, were 50 cubics and 25 cubics. Its gate posts faced the outer court. Palm trees were on its gate posts, so it's highly decorative and extremely beautiful, I'm sure. Uh, there was a chamber and its entrance by the gate post of the gateway where they washed and they burnt offerings. Now, I'm not going to get into the offerings too much in this chapter because we're going to deal with it when we get to chapter 43 pretty extensively. And what is offerings, especially a sin offering, uh, doing in the millennial kingdom? And we'll address that. We'll address that full on. Um, Let's go down to verse 40. At the outer side of the vestibule, as as one goes up to the entrance of the northern gateway were two tables, and on the other side of the vestibule of the gateway were two, two tables. Four tables were on this side, four tables on the other side. By the side of the gate, eight tables on which they slaughtered the sacrifice. So now we're in the inner court, and it would would be that chamber before you would actually go into the uh, the, the temple itself. There were four tables, one cubic. Um, Verse 42, there were four tables of hewn stone for the burnt offering, one cubic and a half, and one cubic and a half, and one cubic and high. And these, they laid the instruments with which they would slaughter the burnt offering and the sacrifice. And inside were hooks, a hand breadth wide, fastened all around, and the flesh of the sacrifice was on the tables. Now, what, what, when you visit um, Israel today, and if you would visit the Temple Mount Institute, they already have prepared these instruments for the rebuilding of the temple. They don't know that it's going to be the tribulation temple, but they have they have the, a solid gold crown for the high priest. They have the forks. They have the instruments, the shovels to remove the uh, the, the coal. Um, they got a million-dollar candelabra that's on display that overlooks the Temple Mount area. Um, they're up and ready to go. They're doing DNA work all over the world to find out who the tribes of Levi are. And um, they're... 
uh, establishing, like I said, the Sanhedrin is already established. And um, so they have those implements in place for that one. Now we're being told, Ezekiel is saying, these are the instruments the, uh, where they're going to do this, the sacrifice, where they're going to put the flesh. Verse 44, outside the inner gate were the uh, chambers for their, the singers and the inner court. Oh, I like that. There's music going on. And one facing south at the side of the northern gateway and the other facing north at the side of the southern gateway. Then he said to me, this chamber which faces south is for the priest who have charge of the temple. So the housing uh, for the Levitical, it tells us in verse 46 that they're going to be from uh, Zadok. The chamber which faces north is for the priest, and they have charge of the altar. These are the sons of Zadok from, uh, Zadok from the son of Levi uh, who come near the Lord to minister to him. So the Levitical priesthood will be ongoing for a thousand years. And he measured the court 100 cubics long and 100 cubics wide, four square. The altar was in front of the temple. So we have 175 feet. Now I actually took the time to draw this out so I could, it would make sense in my own head. And when you put all this together and you have the 175 feet from the temple to that one wall, and then another 175 feet to the outer wall. We also find from the very tip of the the temple itself to the bottom is 175 feet. And with the structures and the buildings and the way that they're built, overall, when you add it all together, it's 875 feet. And it has to do with um, some measurements that we're going to be getting into in chapter... 42, that will explain that. So in chapter 42, oh no, I'm sorry, chapter 41 is the temple, temple itself. Then he brought me into the sanctuary and he measured the doorposts, six cubics wide on one side, six cubics wide on the other was the width of the tabernacle. And the width of the entryway was 10 cubics, and the side walls and the entrance, 5 cubics on this side and 5 cubics on the other side. And he measured its length, 40 cubics, and width, 20 cubics. Then he went inside and measured the doorpost. Boy, this is detailed. 2 cubics. And the entrance is 6 cubics high. So what you have here... And the entrance was seven cubics, three measurements. One is three and a half feet, one is ten and a half feet, and the other one is twelve and a half feet. And it has to do with, with the doors leading into the temple. He measured the length, 20 cubics in the width, uh, 20 cubics uh, beyond the sanctuary. And he said to me, this is the most holy place. There's 35 feet. Now this would have uh, been bigger than the Holy of Holies during what we would call Solomon's time or Herod's time. This one is larger. Next, he measured the wall of the temple, six cubics. Um, The width of each side chamber all around the temple was four cubics on every side. The side chambers were in three stories, one above the other, 30 chambers in each story, and the rest of the ledges 
which were for the side chambers all around that they might be supported, but not fastened to the wall of the temple. So we're looking at this portion. You can see it close to the temple, but it's not fashioned to it. It has different layers, evidently, that are connected uh, to it. And that's what's being described here in verse 7. As one went up from one story to the other, the side chamber, it became wider all around because their supporting ledges in the wall of the temple ascended like steps. Therefore, the width of the structure increased as one went up from the lower story to the higher by way of the middle one. I also saw an elevation all around the temple. It was the foundation of the side chamber, a full rod that is six cubits high. The thickness of the outer wall of the side chamber was five cubits, and so also the remaining terrace by the place of the side chambers of the temple, and that's roughly nine feet. Now, between it and the wall chambers was a width of 20 cubits all around the temple on every side. The door of the side chambers opened on the terrace, one door towards the north, one towards the south, and the width of the terrace, five cubits all around. The building that fronted the separation courtyard as its western end was 70 cubics wide, and the wall of the building was five cubics thick all around, and its length 90 cubics. So now we're talking 125 feet for one and 157 for the other as we get into the, the um, dimensions of this wall that you can see, but it's not connected to the temple itself. Now in verse 13. So he measured the temple, 100 cubics long, and the separate courtyards with its building and its walls was 100 cubics, which is 175 feet again. And the width of the eastern face of the temple, including the separating courtyards, was 100 cubics, 175 feet. He measured the length of the building behind it, facing the separate courtyards with its galleries on the one side and on the other side, 100 cubics, as well as the inner temple and the porches of the courts, their doorposts, their beveled windows, their frames, all the galleries all around. The three stories opposite the threshold were paneled with wood from the ground to the, to the windows. The windows were covered from the space above the door, even to the inner room, as well as outside, and on every wall all around, inside and outside, by measure. And it was made with cherubim, or angels, palm trees, and palm trees between cherub and cherubim. Each cherub had two faces, so that the face of a man was toward a palm tree on one side, and the face of a young lion toward a palm tree on the other side, Thus it was made throughout the temple all around. In other words, it was a continuous pattern. I imagine incredibly beautiful. And from the floor to the space above the door uh, on the wall of the the, uh, sanctuary, cherubim and palm trees were carved. The doorposts of the temple were square, and so also was the front of the sanctuary. The appearance of one was like the appearance of the other. Now the altar was of wood three cubics high 
and its length two cubits, six corners, its length and its sides were of wood. And he said to me, this is the table that is before the Lord. The temple and the sanctuary had two doors. The doors had two panels apiece, two folding panels, uh, two panels from one door and two panels for the other door. And again, cherubim and palm trees were carved on the doors of the temple, just as they were carved on the walls. A wooden canopy was on the front of the vestibule outside, and there were beveled window frames, palm trees on one side and on the other, and the side of the vestibule, and on the other side, chambers and temples of the canopies. All right, let me just stop and say this at this point. Um, To wrap your head around this and say that we understand exactly what's being said, we're all kidding ourselves. Good place for an amen. So what I found out, though, when I was clicking on these things, um, some of these guys went to great detail on the scriptures that we just read, and then they would categorize them, inner court, outer court, chambers, kitchens, and then they would have, this is A, just like when you're putting together one of your kids' toys. You need the instructions. And if you just click Millennial Temple, and what we're going through here tonight, because we teach chapter by chapter, and we're not going to skip the stuff that seems to be tedious, but I want you to be able to wrap your head around it. And what I would suggest for extra credit, because when you get the extra credit, when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the Lord's going to say, oh, you went online and actually did what Pastor Lord asked you to do. Well, you get an extra reward for that. I take that back because I just added to the scriptures. <laughs> no, but if you really want to get a feel for this, it's extremely detailed. But it's laid out. There's guys out there that have taken the time. And everything that we just read with the cubics and dimensions, what goes where, what's the outer wall, what's What's the outer court? What's the inner court? It's just A here, B here, temple itself here, vegetable, vegetable, <laughs> vegetable <laughs> here. And uh, it's just, again, a picture's worth a thousand words. And you can, if we didn't even have this one, put the other one up, guys in the back, get, get a side view of it here. And um, what we're not looking at, remember, this is a mile, we're going to read it in the next chapter that it's a mile square. So we're looking at the temple itself, an inner courtyard, and an outer courtyard. But we haven't even mentioned the one that, um, when we go to um, Jerusalem today, one of the things we like to do is walk the wall. Well, it's not the wall that was built during Herod's time. It was the, the Turks that actually were responsible for a lot of what we see there today. Not the lower ones. The lower ones are original Herodian stones. King Herod was, uh, you can always tell Herodian stone because he would bevel it, no matter how big it was. There was one stone there, 60 tons I think it is. It's as big as a school bus. And how they move that thing, I don't know. But it's a Herodian stone, how do we know? It's got the bevel. He actually beveled every one of these stones. So finally put together, you can't put a piece of paper between them. And you can try, but it won't do you any good. That's the, how, the, how they had that type of craftsmanship back then. But
But these are, would be the ones that would, would be underneath ground level. Why underneath ground level? Because Jesus had a prophecy, didn't he? He says, because you didn't know the time of your coming, there will not be left one stone left upon another. And um, when we visit the Temple Mount area, um, they finally made it to ground level. They've been excavating it for years and years. My first trip was in 79, and it was all dirt. And now what they've done is they've actually got down to the original street when Romans were there in 70 AD, and they knocked these things down. Well, they actually found the cornerstone way, way up on top that was marked where they would actually, um, it's marked as the cornerstone that would have been at the very, very top. They have that, that stone. And for those of you who have been there, especially this last trip, we've made a big point of, of seeing this is actually one of the stones that was still there from 70 AD. All right, so this is, again, going to be tedious. And when we get to the outer court, just go on home, Google it, and it'll, it'll fit together. But I'm just going to read up to verse 14, where, where we'll switch. So now we're talking the chamber of the outer court. Then he brought me into the outer court by the way towards the north, and he brought me into the chamber which was opposite the separate courtyard, which was opposite the building towards the north. Now facing the length, which was 100 cubics, the width was 50 cubics, so you have 175 feet by 87 feet. Opposite the inner court of 20 cubics and opposite the pavement of the outer court, the gallery, against the gallery in three stories. In front of the chambers toward the inside was a walk 10 cubics wide at a distance of one cubic and their doors faced north. Now the upper chambers were shorter because the galleries took away space from them more than from the lower and the middle stories of the building. And from there in three stories and did not have pillars like the pillars of the courts. Therefore, the upper levels was shorter than the lower and middle levels from the ground up. And a wall which was outside ran parallel to the chambers. At the front of the chambers towards the outer court, its length was 50 cubics. The length of the chambers towards the outer court was 50 cubics, whereas that facing the temple was 100 cubics. At the lower chamber was the entrance of the east side, as one goes in from the outer court. And there were also chambers in the thickness of the wall of the court towards the east, opposite the setting, separating the courtyard and opposite the building. There was a walk in front of them also, and their appearance was like the chambers which were towards the north. They were as long and as wide as the others, and their exits and entrances were according to plan. And according to the doors of the chambers that were facing south as one enters them. And there was a door in front of, of the walk, the way directly in front of the wall towards the east. Then he said to me, so he had this angel talking to him, the north chambers and the south chambers, which are opposite the separating courtyards, are the holy chambers where the priest who approached the Lord, shall eat the most holy offering. There they will lay the most holy offerings, the grain offerings, 
And here it says the sin offerings, and I'll come back again to that um, when we get to 43. I will get into the explanation of a sin offering during the millennium. Um, this, the grain offering, the sin offering, the trespass offering, for the place is holy. And when the priests enter them, they shall not go out of the holy chambers into the outer court, but they shall leave their garments in which they minister, for they are holy. So when they're leaving this place, they have to take off their garments and leave them there. They uh, shall put on other garments, then they may approach that which is for the people. But once they're inside, the Levites are inside, we're going to find out, as we're reading here, they cannot be made out of wool. Um, and I'll explain that also. Now, in between verses 15 to 20, we have the place of separation. What separates us from the rest of the world? We're talking about the innermost this will be the center of God's universe, except for the New Jerusalem, for the next 1,000 years. And what we're going to read from 15 to 20 is the one-mile dimension. So let's read that. And when he had finished measuring the inner temple, he brought me out through the gateway and faced toward the east and measured it all around. He measured the east side and he measured 500 rods by the measurement all around. That's one mile. He measured the north side, 500 by one rod. He measured the south side, 500, that's one mile. He came around to the west side, measured 500 rods, one mile. And he measured it on the four sides. It had a wall all around, 500 cubics long and 500 wide to separate the holy areas from the common. So as you would look, as he's looking at this, you have a square mile that's, obviously we're not seeing it here because that's, that's only 175 feet from one to the next. All right, am I glad we're through with the numbers. <laughs> and please, if you want to see how this fits together with all the detail that's here, it is extremely detailed. And some of the guys I read today, they just said, I'm not going to do it. He, he's gonna, some of them just said, well, it was a beautiful temple and um, commented very, very briefly on what we just went through. From 43 to 46, it describes the worship of the Millennial Temple. As we consider the Millennial Temple, we'll need to remember that in the days of Solomon, and his temple, the Shekinah glory, the presence of God, remember when it left? And um, it talks about the glory of the Lord actually rising, going through the eastern gate, to the, it says to the mountain that's on the east, and then it was gone. And the point that we made when we, gave, we taught on that Bible study, the Shekinah glory leaving uh, Solomon's temple, because of the people's sin, he'd had it, he's leaving. And we find the light of the world in John chapter 7 and 8, leaving the temple. And when he left, he left through the eastern gate. And he 
finished, his hour had come. He died for the sins of the world. He was on the planet for 40 days. He was seen by 500 people at one time. And then he took his disciples to where? The Mount of Olives. And here we have the light of the world leaving exactly like it did in Solomon's time. Where did Jesus ascend into heaven from? The Mount of Olives. Leaving the temple, going through the eastern gate, going to the top of the Mount of Olives, and ascending into heaven from there. I think the point we made on Sunday is why people, why should he have such a big struggle with the rapture of the church? As though it's anything that would be difficult for the Lord to do. Can Jesus heal a blind person? Any Christian would say, of course. What about the deaf and dumb? Well, that too. Walk on water? Oh yeah. Feed 5,000? No problem. Um, was Enoch raptured? Yeah, well, yeah, he was taken into heaven. What about Elijah? Oh yeah, 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 him too. But then you start talking about the rapture. And they say, you're crazy. No. From Genesis to... That's in Genesis, Enoch. All the way through... And what happens when you get into even the great tribulation, you have the two witnesses being killed, right? They're dead for three and a half days. Then what happens? Oh, they come back to life. And it says, all the world saw it. Do you realize that we're the only generation that that could actually happen? We call it cable. We call it satellite. Where you can turn on something... And I was watching the news, what was happening in London before I came to the study tonight. Lifetime. So it says, after three and a half days, the Spirit of God came into the two witnesses who had been dead for three and a half days. And what do they do? They rise up in the heaven. So, you know, what a testimony when you think about it. What, what were they doing for three, their, their ministry for the 1,260 days? Preaching the gospel, which is what? The resurrection of the dead. And um, the world wanting, to, when they killed them, they threw a party. They gave, pres- <laughs> they gave presents to people because they were so glad because these guys were gone. And the timing of the three and a half is no coincidence at all. But my point again is you have, you have Philip being raptured after he baptized the Ethiopian. He dunks the guy. He comes up out of the water, and the Bible says Philip found himself at Ozetus. That's 20 miles north. I think that guy went back to Ethiopia with a lot of faith. You'll never guess what happened to me when I was baptized. You know, the guy that baptized me, all of a sudden, he's just disappeared. Well, there was a revival in Ethiopia. Chapter 43. Afterwards, now we're done with the, the measurements. He brought me to the gate, the gate that faces towards the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. His voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. It was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when I came to destroy the city. The vision was like the vision I saw by the river Chabar, and I fell on my face. And the glory of the Lord came into the temple by the way of the gate which faces towards the east. Now, 
When Solomon dedicated his temple, after he prayed, this is exactly what happened, that the glory of the Lord was so thick that the priest had to leave because of the intensity of the Spirit of God entering the temple. Now he's returning. When? After the Great Tribulation. Now we're at the beginning of the the thousand-year reign. Now the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And then I heard him speaking to me from the temple with... Uh, while a man stood beside me, and he said, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the sole of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. No more shall the house of Israel defile my holy name, uh, nor their kings by their harlotry or with the carcasses of their kings of their high places. When they set their threshold by my threshold and their doorpost by my doorpost, with a wall between them and me, they defiled my holy name by the abominations which they committed. Therefore I consumed them in my anger. Now let them put their harlotry in their carcass of their kings away from me, and I will dwell in their midst forever. Son of man, describe the temple to the house of Israel that they may be ashamed of their iniquities and let them measure the pattern. And if they are ashamed of all they have done, make known to them the design of the temple and its arrangements, its exits, its entrances, its entire design, and all of its ordinance, all of its forms, all of its laws. Write write them down in their sight so that they may keep the whole design and all of its ordinance and perform them. This is the law of of the temple, the whole area surrounding, the mountaintop shall be most holy. Behold, this is the law of the temple. Now we'll touch on what takes place, and starting with verse 13 through 27, we'll discuss what in the world are they offering sacrifices for during the kingdom age. Verse 13. These are the measurements of the altar in cubics. The cubic is one cubic and a hand breadth, and the base one cubic high, one cubic wide, with a rim around its edge of one span. This is the height of the altar. And from the base on the ground to the lower ledge, two cubics, the width of the ledge, one cubic, from the smaller ledge to the larger ledge, four cubics, and the width of the ledge, one cubic. The altar hearth is four cubics high with four horns extending upward from the hearth. Then after the hearth is 12 cubics long, 12 cubics wide, it's square at its four corners. The ledge, 14 cubics long and 14 wide on its four sides with a rim and a half cubic around it. Its base one cubic all around, and its steps face towards the east. And he said to me, Son of man, thus says the Lord God. These are the ordinances for the altar on the day when it is made, for sacrificing burnt offerings on it, and for sprinkling of blood on it. You shall give a young bull for a sin offering to the priest the Levites who are of the son, seed of Zadok, 
who approached me to minister to me, says the Lord God. You shall take some of the blood, put it on the four horns of the altar, of the four corners of the ledge, on the rim all around, and thus you will cleanse and make atonement for it. And then you will also take the bull for a sin offering and burn it in the appointed place of the temple outside the sanctuary. On the second day, you will offer a kid of a goat without blemish for a sin offering, and they shall cleanse the altar as they cleansed it with the bull. When you have finished cleansing it, you shall offer a young bull without blemish and a ram from the flock without blemish. When you offer them before the Lord, the priest shall throw salt on them, and they shall offer them as a burnt offering to the Lord. Every day, for seven days, you will prepare a goat for a sin offering, and they shall also prepare a young bull and a ram for the flock, both without blemish. Seven days they will make atonement for the altar. They will purify it and so consecrate it. When these days are over, it shall be on the eighth day thereof that the priest shall offer your burnt offerings and your peace offerings on the altar, and I will accept you, says the Lord. All right, so here's the question. Will there be animal sacrifice during the millennial kingdom? Um, We could have a Bible study in Hebrews right now. We don't have the time. Instead, I kind of like this guy's name, so I picked his paragraphs to, to read from. Um, his, his name is Dwight Pentecost. I just think it's the coolest name that I've ever heard. <laughs> I'm going to quote what he says, because the question here is, what in the world are you having sin offerings for if Jesus died once and for all, which is what Hebrews chapter 10 is all about? He's trying to witness the Jews why there's no more sacrifices. Because when Jesus said it was finished, it was finished. The big problem I have with Roman Catholicism is transubstantiation. The sacrifice continues. That's what happens when, when they turn the wafer into the body and the, 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 the wine into the blood. It's another sacrifice. So what's going on here? I'm just going to... Read and just leave it at that. It will only take a minute. There are several passages in the Old Testament that clearly indicate animal sacrifice will be reinstituted during the Millennial Kingdom. Some passages mention it in passing as the topic of the Millennial Kingdom discussed are in Zechariah, uh, and particularly Jeremiah. The passage that is most extensive, giving the greatest detail, is in Ezekiel 43, Um, 18 through 46, where we're reading right now. It should be noted that this is part of a greater passage dealing with the millennial kingdom, a passage that begins with Ezekiel 40. In Ezekiel 40, the Lord begins to give details of the temple. That's an understatement. That will exist during the millennial kingdom, a temple that dwarfs all of the temples previously built, even Herod's temple, that was quite large, which existed during the earthly ministry of Jesus. After giving detailed details concerning the size and the appearance of the temple and the altar, the Lord then begins to give details instructing as to the animal sacrifice that will be offered. Ezekiel chapter 43. 
In chapter 44, the Lord gives instructions as to who will be offering the sacrifice to the Lord. The Lord states that all of the Levites will not be offering blood and fat to the Lord due to previous sins. It will be those from the lineage of Zadok, chapter 45, 46, who continue to mention the animal sacrifices will be made. Okay, the primary objection made to the idea of animal sacrifice during the millennial kingdom is that Christ has come, offered a peace sacrifice for sin, and there is therefore no need for animal sacrifice for sin. However, it must be remembered that animal sacrifice never removed the sin that spiritually separated a person from the Lord in the first place. And this is addressed when you read um, in Hebrews. Hebrews 10, 1 through 4 says, For the law says it was only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifice year by year, which they offered continually, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would be there would be no need to have cause to be offered. Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. It's a good place for an amen. Let me read it again. It is impossible for the shedding of, of uh, bulls and goats to take away sin. That's Hebrews. It is incorrect to think that animal sacrifice took away sin in the Old Testament. And it is also incorrect to think that they will do so in the millennial kingdom. Animal sacrifice serves as an object lesson for the sinner. That sin was and is a horrible offense against God and that the result of sin is death. Romans 3.20 says, Because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Paul said, How would you know you're a sinner unless the Bible said thou shalt not steal? Have you ever stole anything? All right, you've just been pronounced guilty. You're a sinner. And um, so it was the law that made us aware of it, showing us that this was nothing more than a picture that was going to be completed when um, Pilate examined the Lamb of God. John the Baptist says, there he is. There's the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sins of the world. And that's the one we've been waiting for. He had to be perfect without blemish. What does that mean? He had to be examined. Well, the examiner was Pilate. And four times after questioning him, he says, I find no fault in this man. The thief on the cross knew it. He said, we're guilty of our crimes, but not this guy. He's innocent. And I believe who he says he is, Lord, will you remember me when you enter your kingdom? So what did Jesus do when he goes into Abraham's bosom and he goes into hell? He, they couldn't go to heaven. That's why there was Abraham's bosom. They were waiting they were waiting for Jesus to die on the cross. And that's why the Lord told the thief on the cross, today you're going to be with me in paradise. He didn't say in heaven. He said paradise. So Jesus explained 
that you guys killing goats and bulls, it was a picture that someday the real Lamb of God would come, and then and only then can somebody go to heaven. Matthew 27, verse 52 says, after Jesus' resurrection, the graves, many graves were opened in Jerusalem and appeared to many. They were on their way home. So now, if you get killed in a car accident going home tonight and you're born again, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Just like that. No more Abraham's bosom. It doesn't exist. So, let me finish what he, he ends it this way. Most premillennial scholars agree, and we're premill, agree that the purpose of the animal sacrifice during the millennial kingdom is memorial in nature, as the Lord's Supper is a reminder of the death of Christ to the church today. Animal sacrifice will be a, a reminder during the millennial kingdom. Now think about this. Everybody who enters the millennial kingdom is saved, but they're going to continue to have human bodies, and they're going to continue to have children. To those born during the millennial kingdom, animal sacrifice will again be an object lesson. During that future time, righteousness and holiness will prevail. Like it says, the Lord will rule with a rod of iron. But those with earthly bodies will still have a sin nature, and they will be, there will be a need to teach about how offensive sin is to a holy and a righteous God. Before they would have the Passover, they would bring the lamb into the house for four days. Why? So that the kids would get attached to the lamb. So that it would have an impact with them when they would say, okay, now we're going to take this lamb and now we're going to kill it. You know, there's nothing cuter than a little lamb, right? And there's this attachment. And uh, during the millennial kingdom reign, this will be um, showing the people just how awful sin is and that's, that a sacrifice was made. Animal sacrifice will serve that purpose. Uh, but in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin year by year. Hebrews chapter 10, quoting J. Dwight Pentecost. And I'm not going to be able to make it into 44, but what else is new, right? Um, we'll try to do our best to finish up um, uh, the rest of it next week. And I'll try not to get on too many sidetracks. Let's stand and close in prayer. Lord, thank you for your word. There was a lot to take in. And Lord, as we pray this evening, we see evil is alive and well and killing people for no reason at all except to think that because of jihad that they're, they're going to make it somehow into heaven. We see a full-scale war on and the stage is set for the Middle East war to take place. So we know it's slight. And I would just pray tonight, Lord, as we read through all the details and the measurements of a place that's going to exist for 1,000 years, that we begin to think about the reality of that, and that our life here is short. 
But what you've gone into great detail is telling us that the center of the universe, except for the New Jerusalem, is going to be this temple where your presence dwells. And so, Lord, let us take it to heart, that your plans are so much bigger and greater than ours, that you try to get our attention by setting our mind on things above. So, Lord, help us during these last days as the church seems to want to center more on itself than your kingdom that we see that you have this magnificent structure that um, the inhabitants of the world will come year by year during that thousand-year period of time. So bless your people as we go out tonight. Thank you for your word as we make our way and finish up the book of Ezekiel. In Jesus' name, amen.